When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of the sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Thanks, babe. I apologize. I was, uh, I didn't even do a sound check um, because I was praying and so holy, but really it's just because I forgot and I ran up here and then day already started. I was like, dang. So if your ears blow out later, I apologize. So David, thank you for on the fly trying to fix it all. Um, good morning, church. So as we've been journeying through Genesis, God has been progressively revealing himself to Abraham and, and his people. And what, one of the first names of God we learn uh, when we have um, um, this high priest, this mysterious, uh, mysterious priest is El Elyon, God Most High. And then last week, Pastor Ross preached in Genesis 16, and he did a fantastic job. If you missed that, please listen to last week's sermon. But we see that El Rohi, God who sees me. God who sees me. And this morning we're going to learn that God is El Shaddai, God Almighty. And if you understand who God is and how he has revealed himself, all his promises, all of his commands, everything makes sense and is made possible in light of who he is. But if you get who he is off, his promises, his, his commands make no sense, are, in, are impossible. And so we want to learn more about who God is in our passage this morning, it's been 13 years since chapter 16. So Abram is now 99 and Sarai is 89. They're 10 years and she is still barren. And God appears to Abram and in this encounter we see the most expanded, fulfilled picture of God's promises for Abram and his family. So let's look at verse 1, El Shaddai chapter 17 verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, or in some translations you'll see El Shaddai, God Almighty, walk before me and be 
blameless. God reveals himself in a fresh way to Abram. Remember, God never changes, but he is like this beautiful, perfect diamond that as you turn it, you see different facets of the diamond. And so it is with God. God is infinite, and he has many aspects of his character and who he is. And at different times and different places, he's going to progressively reveal his heart and his character and what he's like to his people. And this morning, we see that he's El Shaddai. Now, El is just short for Elohim, generic name for God. So he's God, and then Shaddai is going to be almighty or powerful. So put those together, God almighty or God all-powerful. But like many words in the Bible, we struggle to translate them in English because it means that, but it also means so much more. If you look up every time El Shaddai shows up in the whole Bible, you're going to see many different contexts. And sometimes it is what you would assume. When you hear God Almighty, you think warrior, brute strength, right? And you do see that. God Almighty, David would call upon him. Like, can you kill my enemies? Because you're powerful. But you also see El Shaddai in context where it talks about God as a nurturer and a life bringer where there's death. So when you think about God Almighty or God All-Powerful, you can't limit it to just one facet of how your mind immediately thinks of powerful, but actually let the Bible tell you the multifaceted reality of God's power. So he is the power both to bless and to curse, power to bring life and power to bring death. Power over everyone and everything. Now, the Sunday school answer, if you are from a church background, is yes, God is all-powerful. But let me ask you just a very pointed question that you will have the temptation to just let it go over your head and wait for me to carry on. But do you see God like that? God Almighty, El Shaddai. And if you want to know if you actually believe that God is El Shaddai, you merely have to look at your lifestyle. Because based on what you believe that is true about God in the depth of your heart will be how you actually live. Let me, let me share with you a favorite quote of mine that some of you are familiar from the famous book, Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. But let me read this out loud with you. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most Portentous, which is another word for important, fact about any man or woman is not what he or she at any given time may say or do, but what he or she in the depths of their heart conceives God to be like. When we tend by secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God, were we, were our, I, I misquote that, were we to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, What comes to your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Who's read that book before? Like a few of you? I highly recommend it. It's a short read, but it's super dense. And it's good for the soul. But the reason why I'm highlighting and take so much precious time to highlight that that, that quote is because at the end of the day, depending on how you view God will dictate how you Relate with God. If you see God as harsh and cruel like your father and distant, then your prayer life will be harsh and distant and very circumstantially based. If you see God as loving and warm, intimate, then it's going to deeply affect the way you relate with him in prayer, right? And we can just go down the line in multiple different applications. But listen, when 
our faith is small, it is a direct picture that our vision of God is small. Our picture of God is small. Our understanding of God is small. When our worship is small, it's because our God is small. And so you can always reverse engineer your lifestyle to give a good picture of what you actually believe about God is true. If your prayer life sucks, like a lot of Christians do, it's likely that somewhere in the depths of your heart, you're not seeing God rightly. Because if we saw God rightly, then why wouldn't we pray all the time and be with him? So these are good exercises for the soul because we can easily give ourselves a quick pass because we know the Sunday school answer. But the real answer is our lifestyle. So when we see God and receive him and trust him as El Shaddai, it enlarges our faith. It strengthens us when we are weak and overwhelmed. It sustains us when we want to give up in the trial. It stirs up trust when it looks like things are out of control and God's not in control. And it kindles hope when all hope seems lost. I I can tell that that Kelsey Charlemagne knows God as El Shaddai and a lot of other things because even though her mom passed just a few weeks ago, she's leaning into him because she has no strength apart from him. Who has strength after your mom dies that quickly? Who does? No one does. So our God church is El Shaddai, God Almighty, And I want to welcome you throughout this sermon and this gathering to declare that over your soul. If your heart is doubting and struggling and weary, speak that over your soul. Soul, your God is El Shaddai, God Almighty. Nothing is too hard for him. Now, in light of that reality of who God is, he's now going to call Abram to walk before him and be blameless. Look at this idea, walk before and be blameless. We, what does it mean to walk before? Throughout Genesis, we've actually seen this idea of walking with, right? Enoch, walk with God. Noah, walk with God. Abraham, uh, Adam, walk with God. But we see this idea of a walk before him, which we've never seen before. Now, if you ever want to understand what a word means, just look at the immediate context. What's tied right after walk before? It's a B word. Blameless. So that's a good cue from the author to help us understand that when we mean walk before God, it suggests this idea of living your life before the presence and the favor of God righteously, in purity, in holiness, in blamelessness. And we've studied blamelessness throughout the whole Bible before. Many times we've covered this word because when we hear blameless, we usually immediately think perfect. And that's not what blameless means. You can be blameless right now, present state, and still not be perfect and still sin. That's not how the Bible views blamelessly. But he's calling him to live before El-Rohi, the God who sees him, and live before me and draw my strength as El-Shaddai. This is a tender picture of living before him. It's like a child living before his powerful, strong, tender, compassionate father. And this is where Abram gets his strength to live blamelessly. Because if you're Abram and you're honest and humble, and I believe Abram is growing in his faith and growing in his humility throughout this journey as God disciples him, Abram just looks at his life and says, well, God, I would love to live blamelessly, but you read chapter this one and this chapter and this chapter. I'm a mess, God. I'm so fickle. 
I turn from you. I don't trust you at times. How can I live blamelessly? And here's the great key is what we just read. God is El Shaddai. Walk before me. Not walk ahead of me. Not walk on your own, but walk with me, before me. And God's El Shaddai, being El Shaddai, his revealing that he's strong isn't just so that he can say, look, I'm strong. By the way, I'm strong. But I'm strong and I want to share that strength with you. My infinite strength, I want to give to you. I want to share that with you. And and if you lean into my strength and acknowledge your weakness, you will have power to do that which you could never imagine on your own. God calls us to the impossible, but readily shares his strength as the almighty God of the impossible. Now let's look at the results when Abram keeps this command. Verse 2. Verse 2, Genesis 17, 2. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Some translations say I will. This whole idea of that is just the result. What's the result of walking before El Shaddai blamelessly? Well, God is going to bless him greatly, multiply him greatly. But this could create confusion, which we'll cover more later. But does this mean this covenant is no longer grace-filled and faith-based? Because God is saying, if you do this, then this will happen. Well, let's touch on that in a minute. But let's see how Abram responds to God. Verse 3. Then Abram, after hearing these promises, seeing this manifestation of God, because remember verse 1, it says God revealed himself. So I don't know exactly how God is manifesting himself, but he's manifesting himself to Abram. Abram falls on his face. God said to him, verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Finally, pastors, we can get to the point of this text where we can stop saying Abraham on accident. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Okay, what's, what's going on here? Well, if you remember, Abram's name in itself already means exalted father, which is a terrible name for someone who has no children and you're 99. Just think about that. His name literally means the opposite of his reality for almost 100 years. So let me just use a an example that may be a little painful to share, but I think it makes the point well. But imagine someone here, some single in here, is actually was named by your parents married. Okay? Just, just roll with me. You're single and your literal name on your birth certificate is married. And you want to be married. And you're single. So everyone's like, I'm just going to pick on you, Andy. Your name is not Andy, it's married. Hey, married. How you doing, Married. Every single time he hears that name, you can see opportunities for his heart to be full of discontentment and hurt and bitterness. See, it's one thing to have a name that doesn't exist in reality. It's another thing to have that name, and God has promised that name would actually be fulfilled, and it's still been 25 years. 25 years before God actually answers the promise that he gives him. 25 years. I can't handle 25 days. 
I'm holding God to his promises for 25 days. And afterwards, I'm like, where are you, God? It's been 25 days. God is not just doubling down on his name. He's raising the stakes at a crazy level. Abram, you're no longer exalted father, but you are actually exalted father of a multitude. (laughs) And so you can imagine the crazy irony of that. Kent Hughes comically put it this way. How many times did that happen each day? 50, 100? Good morning, father of a multitude. Here's lunch, father of a multitude. Good night, father of a multitude. Can you imagine how grating and how difficult that would be? Or if he let it, how faith inspiring that would be. Every single time he hears that name, he's saying, the Lord said it, it will be. It will happen. He said it, it will be. His word is as good as done because he's El Shaddai. And what we see is what we, throughout the Bible, is this picture of identity before reality. God says things of his people regularly that yet aren't fully realized in reality. And we have to cling to it. And so you are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, even though you may not feel very blessed. And you belong as an adopted son and daughter of the God of most, God most high, even though you don't feel part of the family always. You are rich in God, and you will inherit the entire earth, even if you're dirt poor in this age. You are pure and white as snow, even when shame lingers. The Bible is full of this tension of what God says is true of us, and what we feel is true of us, and what we see is true of us in reality. And one day, God will marry those perfectly so there'll be no tension. But right now, we're living with that tension. And let me ask you, are you okay with that tension? Are you okay with God making promises to you that may not happen in 25 years? Just think about that. It's easy for us to, as a third party, think about that happening to God, but what if that happened to you? Indeed, it it has happened to some of you here. What if God has given you a promise and literally he's going to wait 25 years because he's doing something during those 25 years that's sometimes hard for us to see? Like, I just, I literally want you to put yourself in the shoes, having a miraculous encounter with God, you're moving your whole family, God tells you a promise will happen, and he delays for 25 years. Can you trust a God like that? Is he still good? Is he still loving? That's hard, isn't it? Can we just recognize how difficult that is? And can we just recognize how deeply impatient we are? Like, I can't tell you how many people I've counseled, and they're like, I've waited for six weeks. And I'm like, you don't read your Bible, do you? Like, God is slow. And this is a good challenge for me, because there are situations in my life, people that I'm not reconciled with, that I'm begging God to reconcile with, and people in situations that I want breakthrough. And I've been praying for five years, and I feel like this is a big deal. And this is expanding my eyes and my faith to trust El Shaddai in his timing, in his way. And you better believe that Abram has no problem with the temporary delay that he experienced right now. Right now, he has no problem because he's seeing Jesus face to face. And he sees the fullness of his promises coming true. Because remember, the multitude that's going to come from Abraham's line is not ultimately physical, but it's going to be in us, spiritual as well. Those who trust in Christ are Abraham's seed. So Abram is really happy right now. He's totally fine with those 25 years that were really agonizing. But for us in the day-to-day, in the moment-to-moment, it is so hard to trust 
in El Shaddai. So church, if you're in that state of unwanted waiting, unmet longings, just tell the Lord how you feel. He knows. He really does. And just put your hope and trust afresh in El Shaddai that he will do right in the right time. Let's look at verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. What is exceedingly fruitful remind you? Remember Genesis is always connecting with other parts of the Bible? What does exceedingly fruitful sound like? Just remember? The garden. It reminds us of the garden. God initial, God's initial commission and mandate upon humanity to be fruitful and multiply. God will bless him and spread his shalom and his, his image throughout the world. God, though despite man's real good attempts to ruin his plan with our sin and folly, God falls through and follows through with his word. And he's always going back to his original design all throughout the whole Bible. You're going to see it all trace back to these original hearts, designs, and heart of God in the garden. But we learn that not only nations and people will come from Abraham, but kings. And this foreshadows the great King David and the greatest King of Kings, the Lord Jesus. And Abram, dang, now I say Abram. Abraham can rest assured this covenant will happen. Let's look at verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. When God calls it an everlasting covenant, just think about what that word means, everlasting. It doesn't end. And thus, if he guarantees that it's everlasting, he guarantees it will come to pass despite what man tries to do. It's an everlasting covenant that will not fail and it cannot fail because God is sticking his name upon it. And we see this beautiful promise is that he's going to be a God, not just to Abraham, but his offspring. So the same kind of intimacy and relationship God is inviting Abraham into, he's saying that's available for your kids as well. It's not just you. You can have the intimate relationship with El Shaddai as well, and your kids, and your kids' kids, and so on. Now look at verse 8 with me, and this is where we're going to get into some weeds here. So brace yourself. Verse 8, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. There's that word everlasting again, and now we're talking about a promise of land. We see throughout Genesis these three promises that are repeated over again, land, seed, and blessing, and we see that land is emphasized again for Abraham. That whole land of Canaan. Remember, Canaan is about the size of about New Jersey. So that whole land is an everlasting possession for Abram and Abraham and his family. But how does that work? Does that mean modern day Jews have rights over this land today? Does that mean that if you are a fourth Jew, then you have rights over that land? How, how does it actually parse out today? And I just want to be honest with you. I may make enemies right now because there are a few things that some Christians just get really, really into, and that's the land of Israel. And uh, I love Israel. I met Joanna there. That's how we got, you know, together. Um, there's a lot of love there. But I did grow up from a household where uh, 
modern-day Israel possessing that full land uh, was a very, very big deal, very central value to their faith. So what I'm about to say to you may bother you if you come from that background or if you hold those convictions. And I just want you to know that I love you. I love you. I'm not mad at you. And it's okay. We can still be friends and we can talk about it. And I'm not going to give you a full exhaustive talk. Like I saw some sermons on this and it's like 7,000 words just talking about Israel or not. And I'm like, I'm not doing that because that's not the main point here. So if you want to talk more, I want to welcome that. But let me share with you where I'm coming from. And I think a few of the pastors hold my position, but I didn't talk with everyone. So maybe they will disagree. So here it is. I think these promises are still true today, true today, but they don't look the same. This does not mean that God lied, but instead, what we see in the Bible is something we call progressive revelation. We have already seen in Genesis where God is progressively revealing his name and his plans to Abraham. So here's my little kind of summary line on the screen. The greater fulfillment of this promise to Abraham comes in Christ, where the promised land expands to be God himself and the whole earth. So it is fulfilled, but in a different way. Let me explain. In a better way, I would say. So let me explain. At the fall, man lost access to the goodness and the face-to-face presence of God in the garden. And ever since then, man has been clawing and longing, even if they don't know, to get back to that place in that state. To get back to that place in that state. And that's what we're made for. All humans no matter where you're at, instinctively, even though you may not be able to articulate it, know that you belong in a place where you get to see God face to face in that state with no sin or shame or death. So when you hear promised land, the first promised land is Eden. And when you hear promised land here in Genesis 17, it's pointing both backwards to the garden what it originally was supposed to be, and forward to what it will ultimately be with this garden city when new heavens and new earth comes onto the earth together with God and his people and no more sin, no more shame. And we see this also later on in the Torah. All the 12 tribes of Israel had a specific allotment of land, but there's one tribe, Levi, that did not have allotment of land. And you know what the text says? Because Yahweh is your inheritance. Yahweh is your land. So what does that suggest to us? The land is not ultimately about the land, but it's a signpost to a greater reality, and that's God himself. And so let's look finally at Revelation 21.3. Would you read this out loud with me? Because it is just one of the best texts in the Bible. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be them as their God. Do you see how both are coming together? See, the, the, new, the, the garden city is coming down from, from heaven. Heaven and earth are separated right now, and they will become one, and God will be with his people forever. That's what's all pointing towards. And so... I don't believe that Christians should be overly concerned, though you may be slightly concerned at some levels about modern state of Israel trying to get all their land. I would not discourage you from not caring at all. But this covenant to Abraham is truly everlasting, but far better than Abram could ever imagine. You don't just get the land of Canaan. You get the whole earth. Jesus hints at this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit what? The earth. 
You get the whole world with God face to face. And when that day comes, that day will come when the church fulfills her mission and Jesus returns. So let's keep obeying that commission. That's what all of it is pointing to. So if you've got issues with that, happy to talk with you with our Bibles open. But now we get to another sticky but beautiful part of this passage. Verse 9, we're going to consider conditional or unconditional covenants. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. When some translations say, you must keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. So earlier, God commanded him to walk blamelessly before him. And if he doesn't, like that's, that's the result of that actually is the covenant blessings and multiplying. And what God is asking him right now is completely normal and expected in any covenant relationship, right? Because in, two, in a covenant, there has to be two parties. You can't make a covenant with yourself. Uh, I guess you kind of can. But all right, ignore that. That's weird. All right? But you, you can. Um, I make a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust upon a young woman. Job. Right? So you can, but that's not normal. You can, when you make a covenant, there's usually two parties. And both parties have stipulations and requirements. And what we normally see, that's how it goes in the, in the world. But in what we've seen in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 is that God himself is staking the entire covenant on himself like he's the only party representing both us and him. Right? He walks through the carcasses in Genesis 15. If that sounds insane to you, just listen to that sermon because it is insane. And God is putting himself and staking his name under judgment if any party is unfaithful to those covenant requirements. And I want you to look at your Bibles right now if you have them in chapter 17. Over and over again, God is going to repeat this one line. I will. You see that? How many times do you see them? Like, look quickly. How many times can you see them? You can't count them all. We don't have enough time. But do you see how it's just over and over again? I will. Some of you guys are looking at me. I'm not the Bible. But yeah. <laughs> I will. I will. I will. I will. Seven times. I will. Seven. Often the number of perfection in the Bible. So which is it? God will or you must, Abraham? Is this conditional or unconditional? Is this up to God or is it up to us or some How does that work? This is difficult, but church, profoundly liberating if you grasp this truth and receive this truth as we see throughout the Bible. God is literally saying, you must keep this covenant, and if you don't, these promises won't come to pass. But he's simultaneously saying, I guarantee it will come to pass. So how does that work? El Shaddai guarantees the end by empowering the means. Remember, Pastor, what's your name? Dale. <laughs> Talked about this at family camp. God doesn't just ordain the ends, but ordains the means to accomplish something. And so God is going to guarantee that Abraham and his line, at some level, will faithfully keep this covenant, and God's promises will come to pass. So, is this covenant unconditional or conditional? Yes, or both. Man must live out his part, and yet God guarantees that man will, and the promises will come to pass. And so it is for the born-again Christian. God's seed abides in you, and the Spirit will complete the good work he started. It will come to pass. He is the one, Philippians 2, willing and working in you for his good pleasure, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is the one who's working you. So both conditional and unconditional. Now let's look at the sign of the covenant, our favorite Bedtime topic, circumcision, okay? Verse 10. 
This is my covenant, okay? This is going to get weird, but I'm going to try to make it as less weird as possible, okay? This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God chooses circumcision as a physical sign of this covenant he's making with Abraham and his line. And typically, covenants will have some sort of physical sign to mark what has happened as a reminder for both parties what is to come and what is required. But what's going on with circumcision? Why circumcision? Well, let me just say this. If you're not familiar with the ancient Near Eastern context, circumcision was actually already a known reality and practiced by many. Okay, so God did not come up with this idea, like it's not original in the Bible, of circumcision. But as God often does, he takes something well-known from the world and flips it upside down to reveal his heart and his kingdom. And typically in Abraham's day, males would go through some form of circumcision in certain people groups, not all people groups, would go through some form of circumcision, uh, maybe when they reach puberty, manhood or they're getting married so you like you had to earn circumcision you had to be at a certain age and earn it so there's a few reasons that you can reasonably deduce why god would use circumcision to be a sign of the covenant first of all you see that this sign only came to abraham after he already had faith he was counted as righteous remember so unlike most signs of the day Abraham received this sign not because he performed a bunch of rituals or proved himself worthy, but by faith. Grace alone. So this sign is a confirmation. This physical sign is a confirmation or seal of what what already has taken place at the heart level. We see the apostle Paul break this down further. Do you read this with me? Romans 4.10. Oh gosh, don't read it with me. All right. But how did this happen? If you guys can read it in the front. Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham had already had faith, and that God already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. Man, how many times does he have to say that, right? So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. We see this faith and grace reality even in our chapter in verse 12 because they're eight years old when they are circumcised. Before they could do anything. What did I say? Eight days old? Eight years old? Eight days old. That's why you got to check my work. Verse 12. He was eight days old. They get circumcised. What else do we see? Every male throughout the generations, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. And I realize that there's a lot of things there to talk about, but I can't cover all. Feel free to talk to me. Another encouraging reality here is that it's not because you're a strong man or because you did all the different rituals, but you're eight days old. You've done nothing. And you receive that sign. Just a picture that this is a sign of faith and grace. Another encouraging reality of this covenant that we learn in verse 12 is that This sign and this access to El Shaddai is for all peoples. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish. All peoples have access 
to Yahweh if you want. There is no bar here. However, there is a gender bar here when it comes to the covenant sign. God instituted that this covenant sign only applied to males. And I understand that may feel troubling to many of us here, but in the covenant framework of a family, the man would represent the whole family. But this does not mean women were not included in the covenant. They just did not have to take the sign, physical sign of the covenants. They were still part of the old covenant. I think I said new. They're still part of the old covenant. They just didn't have to take the physical sign. And women, aren't you glad that you didn't have to take the sign? Because in Many places throughout the world, they practice female circumcision, and it's barbaric and horrible. And I praise God that he didn't take that upon us. Um, uh, I'm not a girl. Upon my sisters here. But perhaps that still settles strangely, strangely in your heart. The great, new, great news is that in the new covenant, not only do all genders and all peoples and all classes have access to Yahweh in the new covenant, everyone can take the sign as well in baptism. Everyone can take that physical sign as well. Now, let me speculate on a few things. Why circumcision? Like, why that? Okay? It's strange if we're honest, okay? Like, we're talking about strange things. And I'm going to make some educated guesses. More concrete and less concrete as I go down. The mark is very intimate and private. So Every time a man or a head of a household sees it, He can be reminded that he belongs to God. He's made a commitment to God. Also, it is the organ that is connected to having children. And so much of this promise covenant is about having a multitude of children. So it's connected there. And here's the one that I would say is a little bit more speculation, but I think is right on. It is also the organ that gets men in the most trouble. We have seen it already in Abraham's life. It's one of the few areas that if it is not under submission towards God, it has the potential for generational and devastating effects upon the family. Some of you here have experienced the devastating effects of when men do not have their sexuality under submission to God. Unchecked. Divorce. Abandonment. Rape. You name it. What would the world be like if every man had that under submission to God? I mean, can you imagine how incalculably more beautiful and good this world would be? We would not have most forms of human trafficking. We would have way less divorce, way less abandoned children. I mean, you just name it. This is an intentional mark, I believe, that God is setting apart his people saying, that is mine, it's holy unto me, and it's a good thing, but you must use it in my ways. It's a striking reminder how man takes very good gifts and abuses and perverts them. But you're like, that's just too much, Sam. Let's not talk about that. If you read throughout the Old Testament, this idea of circumcision expands beyond the male sexual organ and actually expands to talk about circumcised ears and hearts, and minds. Now, how do you do that? What we see is that circumcision is another way of saying set apart to be gods. And we see as Israel 
develops that they go through these long seasons where their ears are not set apart for the Lord. They do not listen to him, even though they hear the words. So circumcision is beyond just cutting that, that foreskin. It's more about a state of the heart being set apart for the Lord and pointing the ultimate spiritual reality of a circumcised heart in regeneration, in the new birth, that those who trust in Christ get new hearts that are circumcised and soft and set apart for God and receptive to him. Now let's look at verse 14 and we're, we're, we're ending. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this, let me just end on this. This is both an encouraging promise and a grave warning. This covenant is radically inclusive. Anybody can be part of it. But it's also radically exclusive. What do I mean? Anyone can join and have God as their father. Anyone can have El Shaddai if they want. But if you reject his covenant sign and you reject his covenant life, walking before him blameless, you will be cut off and you, have, you lose access to him. Which leads me here, church, to welcome everyone here maybe for the first time or the millionth time, to recommit our hearts to be holy unto El Shaddai. To offer our hearts to be freshly his and to be softened if there is a hardness that has come across, when, if there is an iciness that has come upon your heart. To ask God to soften your hearts. And the great news for those of you who have never trusted Christ, you can have a new heart, new desires, But you have to turn from your control and put your control in your life into El Shaddai. Put your trust in Jesus, the only one who walked before the Father perfectly and blamelessly, and who died for us who live full of blame. And you get to receive his blameless life. And you get considered as you're perfect and blameless like him. And you get to receive his forgiveness, and you get his covenant sign Ultimately, not just baptism, but also the seal of the Holy Spirit. So this relationship with God is radically inclusive to everyone here, but there's only way, one way to have it, and that's through Jesus. And if you want it, please talk with me or any of our members here. We'd love to talk to you more, answer questions you may have, walk with you on your journey. For those of us who are walking before our Lord blamelessly in faith by grace, Our great inheritance in Hope Church is that we will inherit the whole world. The whole earth will be ours, and we get to be with our God face to face forever, everlasting. Amen? Come, Lord Jesus.